I just hit record and we start talking. And that sounds fine. And when we're done talking, uh, yeah. and you can get as close to the mic we, as you can. We have had or... conversations before, and we're both talkers, so it's this is a thing. It's we know, a... and we know when to shut up. Sometimes, most of the time. Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, my name is Clay Toomey, and I am an ambassador for the Enneagram Prison Project. As we approach our 10th anniversary, we thought it'd be fun to sit down and have a chat with all the people who've had a major impact along the way with EPP. In today's episode, I sit down with world-renowned Enneagram teacher, EPP Community Advisory Board member, and my friend, Russ Hudson. Thank you for being here. Thank you. It's I did not know that you were going to be in Dallas mm-hmm. until, um, oh, I don't know, two or three weeks ago, I was talking to Rick Olesic, executive mm-hmm. director for the Enneagram Prison Project, and uh, we're just chatting. He's my buddy, so we just mm-hmm. chat. And he goes, you know, Russ is going to be in Dallas in a few weeks. I was like, what he's coming to Dallas for? Like, what's, what's going on here? <laughs> and so I do the monthly podcast, right? We, we upload these on the 12th of every month. And I was like, man, how cool would it be if the timing worked out? For me to just, because I'm, I'm not far from here. I only yeah. live 30 or so minutes from here, which in Dallas, everything. Dallas, safe. that's nothing. Yeah. So Everybody drives that far every day. I, I'm grateful that the scheduling worked <clears throat> out and also thankful to you for, for giving, giving us some of your time today. So uh, thank you for everything. I guess question one is what brings you to Dallas? What are you here for? Well. Or is I, that even public information? I don't no, know. I can, I can say. No, I'm here. I'm uh, doing a workshop with Suzanne Stabil. And her husband, uh, Joseph, and uh, we've been talking about doing something together for a long time. I met her years ago when um, I was teaching uh, a, a workshop with Richard Rohr. It was uh, Laughing and Weeping, uh, which we did in Albuquerque, New Mexico. But Suzanne was part of it, and she was running all the you know private small groups and exercises and things like that. So got to know her then, and... We've been pals, and you know, she said, "Hey, why don't you come down and uh, do a workshop with me?" I said, "Sure." So here we are. <laughs> cool. And and I saw on the website it's going to be I don't remember the name of the church, but it's going to be at at a church, right? Yeah, and Met- Methodist Church right here downtown. The funny part part about that to me is when, and I don't know if you've ever heard me talk about it, and I'm sure this is not like an uncommon story, by mm-hmm. the way. But my introduction to the enneagram was the symbol. That the very first thing before I heard the word, before I heard the description of anything, I saw the symbol. And I grew up in the in the Bible Belt, right? And the symbol looks funky. Yeah, it, if, it's, it could scare people off. They don't know what it is. And so it's it's fun slash funny slash whatever the word. There's a better word than fun or funny or ironic. But the entertaining thing to my soul is that now we're you know maybe it's not now. Maybe this has always existed in churches, and I just didn't know about it. Well, I think you know. There have been a lot of Catholics uh, and later on some Episcopal folks who were into the Enneagram, largely because of Richard Rohr and some other teachers uh, talking that way. Uh, some of the earliest um, transmission of it in the United States was through the Jesuits. That's how my old writing partner and teaching partner, Don Riso, found about it. He was a Jesuit at the time. Okay. So, you know, it was going around in those circles. But... I think I have to give Suzanne a little credit because uh, she wrote a book called The Road Back to You. She wrote that with uh, a minister named Ian Cron. And um, 
that book has sold gangbusters amongst evangelical Christians, not Catholics, you know, mostly mainstream Protestant denomination people. And um, yeah, it's done really well. And I think it reflects something that I find very cool, that there's a lot of Christians, especially young ones, who have, what do I want to say? They got a little fire in their soul. They want to do the real thing. They want to really see what the faith is about. They want to enjoy, what shall I say, the mystical aspects of Christianity. And they, a lot of them are frustrated with the a lot of the mainstream kind of uh, organizations not really providing that. So there's a lot of young people and people in general who are looking for a deeper dive into what Christianity is about. And I, I think that's amazing. I think it's wonderful. And it's not that they exist separately or into, you know, they do, but it's not like they have to be exclusively, you know, they, they don't have, you don't have to be this or that. It's not one of those kinds of things, right. which, which I was, I won't, I won't put that on somebody else. I won't say that I was brought up to think that I, I was, I would say that that's where my head was for a long time. Like yeah. I, I grew up as a Christian. This is what I believe the Bible, the answer period. And that's how it works. I mean, I, me too. Um, <clears throat> I think that. You start if you're actually studying, you know, Christianity. If you're actually reading Scripture, if you're actually um, contemplating the words of Jesus, you start to come to a different sense of it. And you know, one thing Richard Rohr said to me privately, we were we were having dinner, and he said, for for him, the only heresy is exclusion. Yeah, he said the love of God. Christ's love is for everybody. And anybody who tells you otherwise is not really paying a lot of attention to the teachings of Christ. So, you know, I philosophically, I'm aligned with that. Why would God kick anybody out? Why would, you know, people make their own hells in the different ways they do? That's what we study in the Enneagram. How do you make hell for yourself? (laughs) This is how. Seemed like a good idea at the time, right? But, But I don't think that anybody's outside of the realm of grace i'll put it that way i'm gonna enjoy uh, just a side note here I'm, uh, nobody can see this because we're wearing our podcast clothes yeah you're wearing a shirt that says <laughs> hades town on it that's right <laughs> that's right that's uh <clears throat> that's a show it's a broadway show that i'm very fond of and i'm friends with some of the cast members and it's a wonderful show it's a it's um about the Greek myth. Well, two Greek myths. One is of Hades and Persephone, and the other is Orpheus and Eurydice. So it's two love stories and done in, it's a musical, but it's not like your typical kind of Broadway music. It's like old New Orleans style music. It's got some blues. It's got some folk. It's got some kind of jazzy elements. It's uh, but really cool show. And, um, and I, I just like the t-shirt too. <laughs> it's got a, a hand holding up a, a, a red rose, yeah. a red flower. I like red and black. That's always that's always been uh, it's just the look that I enjoy. I mean, I have a lot of red tattoos. It's a common theme in like my computer, uh, like my wallpapers are often red and black. So I, I like the look of it. And and I see Hades, and I immediately think of some Bible lessons that I had when I was a kid. Because to <laughs> me, Hades, and I don't know. Admittedly, I don't know a lot about Greek mythology or really anything. You know, in that in that. Um, in that neighborhood, but to me, Hades. I, th- I hear Hades, and I think hell. Well, I think it is. It was the Greek name for the underworld where souls went when they died. But Hades was also the Romans co- was a god, and the Romans called him Pluto, so he's the lord of the underworld. 
And so this, the myth actually is kind of interesting. It's, it's um, that Persephone was a, a, a semi-divine being, and she's a beautiful woman. And she had the power of fertility. So whenever she was around, things would just start growing and blossoming. And and so she was beloved of the farmers and people. But <clears throat> she was also beautiful. And Hades saw her and fell in love with her and stole her away and took her down to the underworld. Well, this created a problem because when she left, the world turned cold and barren and nothing would grow. So they had to come up with a deal where half of the year she'd go down and be with Hades, keep him happy. And that's winter. Yeah. And fall and winter. And then she'd come back to the surface and bring spring and summer. So it was sort of like the coming and going of, of fertility in relation to death and dying. So these these stories are kind of funny and amusing stories, but if you contemplate them, they're actually yeah. teaching us stuff. That's, I think, what a myth is for. How much of this do you know from from making an intentional effort to just go and study and learn all that that you just said versus just picking it up over the years when people because i i i get i go down rabbit holes with the best of them yeah and then sometimes you know i'm 42 now and i'm 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 not i don't i i know i'm still a youngster for a lot of people but for (laughs) me i feel like that's i've been around for a while and i just pick up stuff along the way and and all of a sudden one day I'll find myself just talking. I'm like, where the hell did I learn this stuff? All right. And so how often do you, well, first of all, I'm curious because we share it. We well, share a type on the Instagram yeah, and we, uh, we do. Yeah. And I, and I, I think that I, I feel comfortable saying you might experience similar uh, experiences like that. But how often is it just, I just know this because at one point in my life it was said and I remembered it versus hardcore studying. Well, I have a lot of what you talk about. I mean, I pick up things. I have some kind of very good memory, and particularly with auditory. You know, if somebody says something that strikes me, I tend to remember it. Um, if I read something cool, you know, I remember it. But I think in this case, when I was a kid, um, I was really super into mythology because you, know, you get monsters and gods and creatures and things and, and heroes and princesses and all that, but more interesting stories than some of what we learned. And and I just was really into it. <clears throat> my, um, my mom, uh, one of the cool things that she did when I was a kid is I would develop these burning interests and she'd just go ahead and get me a book about it. And and then I could read and study about it, and but uh, yeah, I knew some of these myths from way back. It's funny because the play, the other story is um, Orpheus and Eurydice, and it's a tragedy, and it's been done as um, as plays before. It's been done, <clears throat> but I love the fact that when you have a really powerful story or archetypal tale, that even if you know the ending, it doesn't spare you. It's kind of like you go see Titanic. You know the ship is going to sink, but it doesn't spare you, right? The, you know you know how it's going to turn out, but it you still are going to go on a certain emotional ride. And in Hadestown's like that. There's a, there's a tragic thing that happens, and even if you know the story, the audience gasps yeah. every time. You know, it's funny. I I hear that phrase. You know, you go to see the Titanic, and you know it's going to sink, but you see it anyways. I wonder. 
you know, I'm torn right now because there's so many things I wonder. I just want to go down these. How many things do we have in common? Because it's probably a lot. <laughs> but then I also don't want to be so selfish to just sit here and talk about that the whole time. But I am going to ask yeah. uh, what. So I'll tell you the thing with me about Titanic. I've never seen it. Yeah. Be- because I know the damn thing sinks. Yes. And so for me, it's like, hello, major spoiler. I don't have much of an interest now. <laughs> and that was, that's not something that's only been around in my adult life. That started early in life. And it was, yeah. it was a big issue for me as a student. And, and it wasn't funny in those days uh, because I, if a teacher was teaching something that I already knew, like two plus two is four, duh. The other yeah. kids were struggling with two plus two. I immediately tuned out and went to my own world. Yeah. And I'm, I, I can talk at length from my own childhood and what it was like for me as a student. I'm actually curious about you. What was school like for you in, in the early days, going through high school even? But, but more so like your younger, uh, younger experience as a student. What was it mm-hmm. like? Well, you know, I think I was very much like you. I would get bored if, if it was something I already knew. And vis-a-vis movies now, if I think the tale is, even if I know the ending, if I think something interesting is going to happen in the journey, I'll go see it. But... I skip out on a lot of movies, um, a lot, a lot of uh, romance movies. Uh, okay, couple meets, they love, they fall in love. One of them has a problem or a challenge. Usually, the guy looks impossible in some way, yeah. and then they have a fight, and they, <laughs> and then one of them ends up with somebody else, and then the last minute they realize they love each other, get together, and and that's a lot of movies. Or the action version is there's a young man, and bad guys come and kill his family or his friends or something, and they leave him for dead, and he goes. Some master teaches him, and he goes into training, and he comes back and kicks the the bad guy's butt at the end but you know almost doesn't make it but then he does there are if i took out every movie that had those two plots there's not a lot of movies left you know so i don't need to see those vis-a-vis school i was very lucky um there were suggestions of putting me in a a school for gifted kids and i would have had to be in boarding school but my mom didn't, she nixed the idea. She didn't think it was a good idea. She felt I was already too emotionally isolated. Gotcha. So um, she wanted me to, quote, hang out with normal kids. Right. Whatever they are. Yeah, exactly. And, and so I I did my best. But my teachers, I had some really good teachers, I have to say, who just on the sly, they could see me losing interest in class. And they'd give me extra work. They'd give me extra report. They'd have me read a book. They give me different stuff to do that was not boring for me. I remember even in high school, um, I had a, a a math teacher and I was getting bored with math and I was, he was my geometry teacher actually. And I just had a knack for geometry. I really mm-hmm. got it and was just all those Euclidean theorems, had them down, baby. <laughs> he did them. <laughs> but I was just burning through it and he saw I was going to get bored. So... He um he had me do a report on non-Euclidean geometry. I said, well, what's that? And he says, well, you're going to go find out. You're going to write a report and you're going to tell me what it is. And so and he and he gave me some names to start with Lubachevsky and and some of these uh, mathematicians and um I went and did that report and it really was relevant to what I'm doing now because it was talking about how. Any logical system has a set of 
propositions, mm-hmm. has, has axioms, right, as we learn in math. And as long as what you weave from that doesn't violate the axioms, you've got a, a system of logic. You've got a system of meaning. And, but you always think that the one you got is the correct one. But what I learned from that report was Euclidean geometry only works on a flat plane. For example, if you have uh, parallel lines and you've got a uh, line that is perpendicular to those two, proving they're parallel, that the parallel lines will never meet on a flat surface, but you put them on a globe, guess what? They meet at the pole. Yeah. And and so, oh, okay. And suddenly you see that depending on how you look at something, it changes what you see. And that proved to be quite relevant for working with the Enneagram and yeah. understanding the holy ideas and all that stuff. Yeah, it's funny. As you were saying that, I was going to say, if, if I if I didn't hear the beginning of that or the end of that, I would have I would have not known you were talking about geometry. I would have thought you were just talking about something intricate within the Enneagram itself. Yeah. There's a lot of similarities there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's just, again, you, you create axioms. All uh, philosophical, religious systems you know scientific systems have a set of assumptions and then they build a system of meaning from it and you know if you it whatever your assumptions you start with determine what you're going to be able to find from that system is there a soul or not some religious systems say yes some say no and what you see Pursuing either of those systems are going to be different. Doesn't mean one's wrong and one's right, but they'll reveal different things. In because in a certain way, you get right down to the what do I want to say? The raw fabric of reality. Is there a soul or not? There is and there isn't. Yeah. <laughs> depending on how you're looking, and that's not just relativism. That's not just some sloppy, easy, new age thing to say. Yeah. There's a real truth to it. So. Uh, childhood Russ. Yeah. Uh, they suggest they suggest gifted classes. Mom says maybe not because, um, yes, he belongs there in terms of academics, but in social, uh, you know, ex- experience, he needs you know, like you said, the quote unquote normal. Similar for me, except a different flavor is I belonged in gifted and talented programming, but my behavior restricted me from being allowed to even mm-hmm. apply for it like my teachers would be like you, you don't belong here and then the people who were running it go we don't want that kid here he's he yeah. gets in trouble so it was for it was different flavors of, of the same thing and i sometimes i feel like i got screwed you know in a lot of ways but sometimes it's like you know what i maybe i did just belong with everybody else and it's it's you could you could debate it's it all hard day to, again it's one of the those just like I was saying, it's a paradox. Yeah. How can we know? We'll never know. We we went the way we went. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that in a way my mom was right, that I needed to know how to interact with and be with, quote, normal people, end quote. And I'd been in that very rarefied environment. I'd have learned a lot of stuff, no mm-hmm. doubt, but I would not have necessarily learned how to navigate the human world as well. At the same time, you know, like you're describing, a number of my pals who were gifted were also had uh, what they would describe then as behavioral issues. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I had my versions of those, but I was sneakier, I think. Yeah. 
slick about it. I, I get my revenge on the sly. Yeah. <laughs> what? Any particular story comes to mind? Oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> or you can narrow it down to three stories if you want. <laughs> uh, oh my! I I don't know. I would just. The statute of Most limitations. Of them, when I got a little older, I, I can remember them more. When I was a young kid, I did some crazy ones, you know. Yeah. I lo- these guys were trying to steal something from me, and I locked them in a closet, and I taped up around the edges and hooked up a vacuum cleaner. I was trying to suck the air out of the nice. closet. That's, That's a little mad behavioral mad problem, scientists. mad scientist style, right? Yeah. They didn't die. And, I, and they didn't die, yeah. fortunately. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But you know, I, I would when I was in the the frenzy of doing that, I, I wouldn't have minded. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was just, I was really mad. But I, you know, I just had those kind of mad scientist kind of ideas, and you know, sometimes it was simple. You know, when I was in junior high, I remember certain guys picking on me, and I had two things going for me. One was that some of the really tough kids that were, you know headed for a life of challenge shall we say they always like we were both the weirdos we're the outliers we were the the misfits so they kind of looked after me so when just the kind of regular school bullies who were just never interesting people the the real badass kids would would take care of me and sometimes take care of them if you know what i mean yeah exactly so i i I had like a, a little posse which was good, and uh, did that bring relief, or did it bring any sort of guilt connected to that? Like, no, no, because the, these the ones who were picking on me were really mean. So they deserved it. They deserved it, yeah. and they were they were <laughs> stealing stuff, picking on me, and being stuff assholes. Like, they were just being awful, right? And and I just I didn't request anything. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> they just said they just say we heard you were picking on Russ, you know. There's a price to be paid, you know. So, you done fucked and they up. and they only did it once. And they they wouldn't be a problem again. The this the, the craziest one I ever did when I, that I remember from high school was, and this is more mad scientist. <laughs> just this is I can't believe I'm telling you this. We're we were in science class. Those are the best stories when they start with I can't believe that I'm telling you. this. Oh, I know. It's like it's it's like being on. Uh, <laughs> There, there's certain talk shows I like to watch that are funny because mm-hmm. the, the the host gets people to talk about these things. But I was I was in uh, science class. This was you know junior high, still. Uh, I was in uh, ninth or tenth grade, tenth grade I think. And we had grown um, a culture in a kind of mayonnaise jar, and then we we're supposed to get rid of it. Well, my lab partners who were in cahoots with me. We did not get rid of it. We put it in the back of our kind of lab drawer locker thing yeah and every day we'd eat some of our lunch and oh, we'd no. put part of it in there and this thing just started to grow into this horrible fungal mold god knows what it was and we we called it godzilla <laughs> and these these guys were stealing my lunch every day and they were particularly stealing my gummy bears and that was just unforgivable yeah so after they did this a few times, I said, you guys better stop. And they said, Whoa. Yeah. one of the guys. So I took some gummy bears. I planted them in Godzilla. Oh, no. And they sat there and, and let them, you know, marinate, yeah. you know, whatever the hell that was, for a few days. And then they put them back in the gummy bear bag, and the guy stole it and ate them. Well, he wasn't at school for the next few days. <laughs> Jeez. He took him out. Yeah, yeah. And, they, you know, I had that little... 
That's that did dark. he know that you did that intentionally, or did it? I, yes, he yeah. did. He, well, he did figure it out, and they said, "Don't mess with that kid." Yeah, it, I, I used to, you know, I, I talking with people about that aspect of of five, that dark aspect of five. I call it the Heisenberg mm-hmm. effect. Mm-hmm. You know, from Breaking Bad, you like you, five start Breaking Bad. It's it's really bad. <laughs> I am the one who knocks. <laughs> yes, exactly. Famous line from that. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, you, there's there's a few people in the world that you don't want to mess with. Somebody who can be more violent than you. Yep. And someone who can be more psycho or crazy or however you want yep. to phrase it than you. And sometimes physical violence, it's not necessary. Oh yeah. And and it, it's one of those things, you know, I I I'm capable. It's not an issue. I just don't prefer it. It's weird to me to be that way. Yeah. And I much prefer the gummy bear in the mold path. Yeah. I, well, I'm, I can't say that I was never violent when I was younger because I right. was sometimes, but I was more often the object of violence, but sometimes I l- lost it and tore it. And, and I, you know, I get kind of psycho. When I was, yeah. <laughs> you know, like get, get that kid off me. You know? Yeah. But I, uh, I came to a certain point in my journey where I just realized I I did feel bad about it. I didn't see it as a solution. I didn't think that meeting out what had happened to me was a good idea. And there was a, a way I had to kind of come to terms with that, with my own temper. You know, and the Enneagram theory predicts it. My shadow as a five is of the low side of eight. So, you know, in certain situations, I'd lose it and do stuff that eights do when they're not having a good day. And I, I just had had to come to terms with that. And, you know, it's a process. This is, I keep saying the Enneagram is shadow work. I had to make friends with that part of me instead of pretend it wasn't there. Yeah. And then start to change. Didn't happen overnight, of course. <laughs> yeah, it's probably, I would guess, a process that's just kind of ongoing, right? That's just Oh, yeah, perpetual. yeah. I mean, you know, still sometimes... I. <laughs> I read or see things or people do things and I, and I just feel that that red fire eight energy you know rise up I just now I know how to follow a different track in my brain and mm-hmm. channel it into some kind of constructive way of speaking up or doing something or saying something that isn't just blowing my top and reacting to them uh you know cuz you can even verbally do damage yeah. you know from that place I think the verbal damage is, is, I mean, physical pain is so quick and simple. It's, it heals differently. It's that doesn't hurt the same as verbal, yeah. emotional, oh, yeah. however you want to call it. So yeah. I would agree with that a hundred percent. Yeah. I've had to learn to watch my tongue too around mm-hmm. all that, you know, just there's things, see, th- that's the danger of power, you know, because you start to learn this stuff. I've been teaching a long time and I see things going on in people pretty much all the time, but I'm not trying to psych people out. Yeah. I have zero interest in psyching anyone out, but I notice things. And I've also learned that don't mention what you notice unless someone asks you. It's it's really nobody's business yeah. and it's not even mine. I just, I notice, Oh, if you'd like to know, I notice this, Yeah, but it's, you know, using that, that, that kind of knowledge can be weaponized. And so there's a process of understanding that if I do that, uh, how can I say the karma is a bitch? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to ask one more question about, um, about youngster Russ and, yeah. uh, then we'll, we'll move that on from that. <laughs> yeah. He, so how early do you, um, or, or do you remember 
that you how early it was in life that you realized that you enjoyed teaching and whether whether it was something big or whether it was something small i have a memory that's so it's so burned in my brain from when i was in the second grade when i was trying to learn multiplication mm-hmm. someone taught me and i was i i was on the receiving end of it but i knew i want to be that guy yeah i want to take something complex and simplify it for for someone else was there a point for you when you were like hey this teaching thing i want to do that yeah well it was a little more complicated for me in that i one experience i had of it when i was in fourth grade um i well each year in our uh, elementary school we would have a science fair Mm -hmm. and there were prizes and in third grade i won the blue ribbon first prize i did a thing about the solar system and the planets and all that and fourth grade i did one on evolution in the ages of the earth no award i found out that later on i didn't find this out but later on my teacher was outraged because a couple of the people on the committee were fundamentalists and they just didn't want anything mm. that smacked of darwin or evolution to be you got hit with politics i got hit with politics i was i was nine years old you know Jesus but anyway Christ. um my teacher felt um bad and so her husband was the biology teacher at the local high school so she had me come with my charts and stuff and I went there with him and I gave a presentation on this to the high school biology students and I and I just was yeah you know, off doing it, doing what I do, just talking and explaining and, and then this <laughs> happened and da 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 da. And then I finished, I looked out and they all had their jaws and they were all looking at me like I was from Mars. Yeah. And it scared me because I realized I had scared them. And the, I said, are there any questions? <laughs> well, how, you're only a little kid. How do you know this stuff? And what could I say? Did I read books? You know, it, But anything I said, it just made them feel bad. Yeah. And I didn't want them to feel bad. So I kind of pulled back. A little later on, I another teacher uh, discovered I could sing. And I didn't know I could sing. I didn't know I had any talent. I was just a science nerd kid. But I could sing and uh and he discovered I could act, so he had me star in the school play. I played Tom Sawyer, actually, yeah. in a, a operetta of Tom Sawyer. And it was singing and dancing and all that. And I did this. My mom and dad were in total shock. They did not know their kid yeah. would do this. And everybody then everybody liked me. So I was thinking, how can I put this performing thing together <laughs> with, with uh, conveying information that I think is cool? And... You know, I went into from that into being a musician for years, but I always had this interest. And even with music, I wanted to sort of convey messages and blow people's minds and so forth. But I think I didn't really consider teaching till later on. I wanted, I knew I would probably be good at it. I had confidence that I knew the material, but I, I just had this little thing of being afraid of scaring people. I don't want to scare people with my difference or acumen or whatever. Yeah. How how much of that I, I would how much of that still exists if if at all? I think Don Riso hit the nail on the head. He told me when I was very first working with him. He said he said you're brilliant, you're very clear, 
you communicate well, you communicate in a way that people understand complex ideas. He says, however, he says, you ha what's important for you is that people need to know that you care about them. He says, when you can do what you're doing and convey to people that you give a damn about them, yeah. he says, then you'll be really a teacher. You'll be a force to be reckoned with. And I, I took in his advice and I realized he was, he was telling me the truth. Just me rattling on about, you know, yeah. these topics is very different than me sitting down and teaching someone. Yeah. It's a different energy. We recently did, uh, by we, I mean EPP, we have, um, we had our training program for, for, for new guys or people who want to be guides, want to go in in prison and teach. Sure. And we had, um, we did some teaching, uh, this is all over Zoom and stuff because we're all spread out over the world, where people would practice teaching with us. And it would be a few people in the class with them. It would be another guide, and it would be usually an ambassador or one of the guys who's been previously incarcerated. And the, it's, it's nice. The feed, that feedback right there that he gave you is, is still that's, – that's the number one thing that we say when we talk about going into prison. Right. It's not limited to prison. It's it's just how people are. It's 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 absolutely uh, step one, you know, for most people probably, and then especially in prison. If you and I, and he's you know you say give a damn, I say give a shit. It's because it's easier to say gas. Gas factor is what yeah. you know. If you don't give a shit, then I don't give a shit. I'm right. not listening to anything you say. Right. And if you care, and I think you care, then you have my attention. Well, that's been my experience just teaching in general and certainly been true when, I, when I've gone to the prisons and the jails with the guys, and it's very palpable. I think that, you know, we learn about the centers in the Enneagram, and I think the more that all three of our centers, our main centers, you know, there's others, there's seven of them ultimately, but when the three main ones are engaged in what we're doing, it has a different effect. Um, and there's a difference between being there in my heart and being in some kind of sympathy that draws attention to itself. It's a subtle thing, but people know the difference. Yeah. Um, and, you know, whether whatever we're teaching, you know, I think the whole basic premise behind the Enneagram is, is transmission. You can't exactly teach the Enneagram in terms of what it really is, but you can transmit it. And that is what I think counts for people. People can see that, that if, you, if you're in alignment with, you know, David Daniels used to say, when we walk our talk, and that's, that's an aspect of it to be sure, but I think it's embodying what you're speaking about. I, I just see people all the time um, talking about, being free from fixations while they're speaking from their fixation. Yeah. And it's kind of a, it creates a little cognitive dissonance for the listener, you know, or the viewer. Uh, what might that sound like? I'm, I'm trying to think how that would be. Well, you take any type and just start talking about the Enneagram like you're that type. And, and okay, that, that's a good beginning. But if you're talking about the Enneagram as a tool for liberation, if you're talking about it as, how to you know get out of the box, as I like to say. Yeah. Well, it it behooves you to be at least a little bit out of the box. Yeah. You know, if I'm just being really five-ish while I'm talking about the enneagram, it doesn't cut it. Yeah. If somebody's a seven and they're being very seven-ish, it, it doesn't cut it. Yeah. 
So how then do you, how I won't say step out of it, although maybe that is the right phrase, but how myself, I'll use myself as an example. If I am, if I am a type five, how do I go in as a teacher and not be a type five? Well, by bringing in the other centers, like, is if I'm a five, I've done my homework. I know the information. I don't have to worry about that part. It's the easy part. It's the easy part. Am I there grounded? Am I kinesthetically aware? And is my heart available? And if if the contactful part of it, you see, like for me, I've, I've used that when I'm teaching about five, is that for me, presence is contact. If in contact with myself, in contact with you, in contact with the room, and the, the the feeling of presence as contact is the restorative part for five, which means the other centers are involved, and it means I'm outside of the box. Then the information is there and available, but it's not the only thing for sale. Yeah. You know, there's more to me than that, and it makes the the interchange with the other person exponentially more powerful i'm thinking if i'm if i'm a listener right now and i'm listening to this and and all the fives are happy because we just talked about what that's like to be a five (laughs) and i and i wonder you know if there's a if is there a 30 second snippet for each type that we could just go around or is it or is it or it could be i don't know it's it's always about going where your personality doesn't want to go yeah so like eights know very well it's vulnerability being letting yourself be touched and affected by how you're affecting the other person, how they're affecting you. And in and turning to the grounding in your body is empowerment instead of a wall. Right? Um, the nine is about um the quality of my engaged attention. Where I'm really a hundred percent here and no part of me is in the back room hiding out. No part of me is focused on anything else. I'm not thinking about a fishing trip. You know, I'm here with you all yeah. full on. And people feel that when nines do that, it's they, they can do miracles. And one um is the openness. It's really the experience of openness, open endedness, curiosity. Uh, not needing to have answers or prescriptions, right? That's where I tend to go. It's easy for me as a one to go there, and it's safer, but the it, thinking of it more of as a shared exploration mm. is really helpful for one, like and then brings out everything good that the one has to bring. You know, Susan does that all the time. Yeah. She always that She doesn't tell people what to do. She asks them a question. Yeah. She'll say, like, Rick, I'm wondering, yeah. <laughs> how is this for you? To get people to look deeper. And she's actually, and you can tell she really wants to know. Yeah. Um, two, um, it's more about respecting the sovereignty of the souls involved. It's more about sitting in my own sovereign being let the other person of their sovereign being we're not here to merge mm-hmm. right we're going we are connected can't help it yeah. but you, the connection actually deepens and comes to the real place to the degree i'm dropped in and letting the other person drop in rather than trying to trying to connect right that's actually counterproductive when twos do that again amazing things occur threes it's um Letting go of the wonderful plan and agenda I have 
for the other person or for myself. Like I always tell threes, like when they're meditating, you know, we're not going anywhere. Mm. That's what what's hard about it. We're used to constructing a plan, and here's what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to fix it, and then we're going to go do this. And that's cool for a lot of things. But when it comes time to really show up and be a facilitator for another human being, that's what you got to relax. That'll just naturally be there. Idea, cool ideas will come. But the more you're open to new inspirations, the more you're just there in the dynamism with the other person. That will create the agenda and the forward momentum. It doesn't have to come from me. Yeah. Yeah. And for, um, it's, it's fours tend to show up in situations by seeing how what the other person's experience relates to what I'm experiencing. So, oh, that's like a time I did this, or, oh, I can relate to that because this happened. And and it's it's a natural thing. It's not a bad thing. Yeah. But some people feel that's like taking attention back to yourself. It may or may not be. Right. But it's a really good discipline for force to just make it, uh, about make it more about the other person. If there may be an experience that you have that is relevant that could be illustrative, but double check yeah. <laughs> and and it's just more the the being in the mystery and and really listening deeply to the other soul and it will inform our own experience but we have to be careful about that habit of verifying things like gotcha. oh yeah i relate to that oh yeah i had that experience oh yeah verifying that that's that's the perfect word that makes that makes sense for me maybe i shouldn't say it makes sense for me because i'm doing the same damn thing yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> i literally just did in real time oh, yeah, yeah. what you said don't do no i have that's a, a, that's I have a, a four one. wing i do yeah. it i do it and i it's a habit and it's not evil or bad but it just limits my availability yeah to really be there as a force for the person i'm there to support if if that's indeed what i'm doing um I think sometimes we do it also to sort of feel like, oh, you know, usually I don't relate to anybody, but gee whiz, I can relate to you. I yeah. can relate to that. And sort of like reassuring myself and the other person that we're connected. Um, the, the five, uh, we already said, mm -hmm. it's contact. The six, um, trust that what you need to know will come to you. Trust that, if you're just really there with the other person, the wisdom of how to respond to them, when to respond to them, cool ideas about how you might, you know, help them get out of the box, that will come to you. You don't have to be overthinking it, trying to come up with some kind of a plan or idea. It's it's not a test. Mm -hmm. I always tell that to the sixes. You're not being tested. <laughs> No one's going to grade you. Yes. Yeah. You know, you're all right. Just give yourself a little breathing room and you'd be amazed what can come through. And I always try to help them see that they've already done this many times. It's not alien territory. Yeah. And just haven't put the, put together, they haven't connected that a certain orientation in themselves makes that more likely to happen. Um, and so seven is, uh, there's well a couple of angles with it, but I think um, a 
seven, it's, it's, it's the, it's so much of the fear is around being limited, being trapped. And so there's like, um, some of the other types we looked at, it's really being committed to staying right there with the person, staying put, planted here. There's no place else to go with my attention or anything else. So I'm just right here. And the more I do that, it gets easier and it gets enjoyable. And, mm-hmm. um, I feel the that is the path toward a certain kind of freedom. You know, that's you know what sevens are actually after is that sense of freedom. I think too, it it's it's growing my capacity to be with the suffering in this world. I don't think I, I'm always telling people if you think sevens got a get out of jail free card for human suffering, you are you don't know any sevens. Right, they suffer just as much as everybody else. They get terrible depressions. They get all anxiety attacks, all kinds of things. But they just have a certain way of coping with it. But they're learning, like we all are, to have a greater capacity to be with suffering, which actually opens up the resources of bringing positivity and freedom to the situation. Yeah. You know, I remember talking with uh, guys in San Quentin about that one time, how what freedom actually is. Wasn't, I wasn't telling them what it was. We had a really right. cool discussion. So the, you bring up San Quentin, and I, and I, by the way, thank you. I, I totally put you on the spot with that little impromptu uh, <laughs> lesson there. And, and for, people can't see because this is all just on the podcast. But I, I have no notes. We're just sitting here. Literally nothing between us but a couple of mics. Right. And I didn't plan that, <laughs> and, I'm, I, and neither did you, and I, I appreciate it. So thanks for running, running us around the circle. with Yeah, a little, give people a, little, a reason to listen to quickie. what we're talking about. <laughs> But talking about uh, San Quentin and, and going going on the inside, as, yeah. as we say, I suppose euphemistically, what uh, for, were we the first people to take you inside, or had you been to prison before? No, no, first time I went in was I, I'd been in in jails before, yeah. but not in a in a capacity of doing something yeah. in the jails. Uh, but this is a, the first time I was in prison or jail to provide a service, shall we say. And that it was with EPP, yeah. How much of that first experience do you do you remember? First time at, in uh, first time in San Quentin. San Quentin, I remember pretty well, actually. Were there any expectations that you had? And it could be big things, small things, with the way it smelled or looked or anything that, that stuck out to you from from like this is not how the movies are, or maybe mm, this is how the movies are. No, it wasn't how the movies are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, the movies you just always see the cell blocks, right? And guys rattling cans against the bars or something, and mm-hmm. prison riots. You see that a lot. Uh, no, you know, just going into that first area where they got the kind of garden and the the religious services are there, and then going into the back area with the the, the yard. And um, it's all very clear in my mind. The first time we went, we didn't go back to the yard. Uh, we, we were just in that front area, yeah. and we were in a right there with the chapel. We're in the chapel. Yeah. That's right. And I just mostly was really curious to meet the guys and and uh, see how I would fit in with what Susan was doing, what she was planning. And um, it was remarkably um, easier than anything I would have thought. I didn't feel like I had to work at all. And I think some of that is because a lot of the guys were ready. And I've said that, you know, people ask who's 
hard to teach and who's easy to teach. I said, I don't really think in those terms, but mm -hmm. I, I have said sometimes some of the, the people I've met in prison or jail are amongst the easier people to teach because like, shit, we got nothing to lose. You you're know, right. it's like, you're at the bottom. And, and you're, you're being honest, you're being real with me. Tell me more. And it's very simple and it's very human. And, and so I feel a lot of transmission there. And I also think, you know, the team has their, have their head screwed on right and the, the the whole setup and the way the curriculum is done everything is really good so um yeah i just remember these very heartfelt profound conversations and just uh, you know one of the things i've said that some of my students probably hate but i don't know um they said, what makes a great teacher? People ask me that all the time. Yeah. Well, I say, you have to know the material. Right. No getting around that. But that's the easiest part. Yeah. You have to develop your capacity to be present and to be with people. That's a lot harder. Mm -hmm. And the third, which you can't really do anything about, and this is the, the, real, the part that will turn many people away, you have to have suffered enough. And, you know, everybody I know who's been inspired to really do work with this they've been through some things and it, it isn't like you need to go out and create suffering but and i don't think that would even help i think right. it'd probably be very counterproductive people, synthetic suffering doesn't sound uh, too no, legit no. no no and people are plenty good at doing that without any help um <laughs> i but i think it's like getting in touch with how much are you in touch with your own suffering? How much do you understand your own suffering? Because if I can't be with mine, how the hell am I going to be with yours? And so if I've been on a journey of healing, I also know the ropes a little bit. And certainly when we're teaching in jail or prison, and that's where you ambassadors become super important, it's like people need to know this is not some pie-in-the-sky nonsense. Yeah. You seem like a real person. You've been on the ropes. You know what it's like. It gives people hope to see, you know, when people find out that I lived a lot of my life in in deep depression, a lot of suicidal ideation, I was really in, in trouble for years. Yeah. It gives people hope like, well, damn, you know, yeah. that weird guy can get out of it. You know, maybe I can. And that and that's the truth. When I when I first met Susan, uh, I was I was uh, by the way, there's more water if we need. I'm, uh, I'm good with the water. Okay, cool. Thanks. We, uh, I was in the shit, as they say, you know, I was, yeah. I was at the end of my rope. Um, I, I was in prison already. I'd been there for two or three years at that point. And I was, I was so, um, I just wanted a better way. And I was at a point, I would have never been like that in the free world. I mean, I, I'd been, I'd reached points in the free world where, you know, prior to prison where I was miserable. I didn't know what to do. I was just throwing anything against the wall to see what would stick. I was completely lost, but I never in the, in the free world, I never got to a point where I was like, I need answers and I'm open to them. Mm -hmm. I just knew that I was lost. Yeah. And then after that, I, I turned myself and went to prison, all that stuff. And that whole time I was searching and I thought I was doing work and you know, I really, I really was. And I was just kind of rosining up the old bow, I guess. Uh, but I wasn't really <laughs> doing any real work. I yeah. didn't know what, I didn't know what to do. Right. And so when I met Susan, and this, this, the timing was just perfect. Cause I was, I was just so, I was just so hurt, just in so much pain and, and lost. And, and that's a bummer for a lot of people. Doesn't matter your type. That's just, that's just sad. Yeah. And 
in addition to that, for me, based on my type, structure, personality, style, whatever the phrasing is that somebody might choose, not knowing is is even more painful for me than than just generally being sad or lost or whatever. Yeah. And so the timing was just fucking perfect, man. And, mm-hmm. and I was, I think, I, I, I totally, it makes sense to me why prison is an easier place to teach or to talk well, about this stuff. Well, it, you know, it, it can have a certain monastic element. You know, your life is controlled, just like people going into a monastery. One's voluntary more than the other in general cases, yeah. but still. And sometimes when some of the guys are having a hard time, I've, I've, thrown that idea at them i said you know consider this as like you're in a monastery yeah and so you are not subject to all the temptations and craziness that's out there mm-hmm. on the outside you can focus here in a yeah. way that there's a support for that that's i've described it uh very similarly i've 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 told people you know when they ask why did you turn yourself in why did you you know you got away with all this blah 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 and all that stuff and the reality is and it took me many years to get past the shame of admitting it in these terms, but the reality is I was not okay being a, an adult yeah. in the free world. Yeah, I needed somewhere where I had no responsibility. Mm-hmm. I needed somewhere where I didn't have anybody who needed me. I needed somewhere where none of these things out here existed. And so it's a, it's a similar thing with with different with different details but it's the same idea and it was all about me and at the time i even felt selfish like am i being is it all about me right now and maybe it was i don't know i I was so lost that i i i believed that my only hope was to start on the inside and then just go out from there i i think you know it's it's weirdly parallel to why some people go into the military Mm -hmm. you know i'm thinking of um some of the men and women I've met in in jail or in prison, I'm thinking of one young man I'm very fond of, um, without you know revealing anything. But but he made a he was on the inside. He was due to get out, and he asked to stay longer because he felt he wasn't ready for the very reasons you're saying. They just thought you know if I get outside, I'm just gonna, gonna get, fuck up. I'm gonna fuck up. I'm gonna get in trouble again. And he and the judge was real impressed with him yeah, and gave him a good setup. But I mean, you know, I, if you think about the original sense of incarceration, I think it was partially to give people that chance. Of course, it gets distorted as hell and it gets mixed up with, you know, desires to punish and revenge and all kinds of things. But I think the original idea of it was that that it gave people a time to sort of come to terms with things, to maybe get some healing, to take a little journey in their soul. Yeah. And, and you know, I think if we can do more work like EPP and make that more explicitly the case, you know, they're going to have a lot better society in the long run, don't you? Yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. I think that in, in our culture, uh, prison has just turned into like a vengeful thing. I, I don't yeah, think there's any. Mostly, I, it, that's it's, it. it's hilarious that people say corrections and people will call themselves correctional officers because, haha, that's hilarious. It's yeah, just no, not it's, the case. It's not what I see. Yeah, it, it's it's like trying to restore something. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things. I, you know, there's so many things though. I think that yeah, you know, I've been doing uh, work on um, with the prison system with, you know, EPP, I've been doing work on, um, 
on healing racism and uh, social and religious divides. And when you look at it, it isn't like this is some recent problem. Humans have always been like this. And, and no matter where you go in the world, people don't like people who are different from them. Right. <laughs> people are afraid of other people and people rip each other off. And it's just, is anybody surprised? I, I think, though, that it helps me because if I just think of this as problems that and that we're all screwed up, it's just too depressing. I just want to, you know, give up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but if I look at it as there's more of an evolutionary urge, like something in us knows we can do better than this. Mm-hmm. We can do better than this. And sometimes we do. There's evidence. Yeah. There have been people who've done better, and sometimes you and I do better, right? And and we see that. So I, I like to think of it more as an evolutionary step. Like maybe we can come to a society where we don't hate people who are different than we are. Maybe, and, and for real. Right. Maybe we can come to a way that when somebody's stumbling in life, we can see that and catch them before they really fall into trouble. You know, yeah. I I don't expect this to happen quickly or right. probably not in my lifetime, but yeah. you have to start the building blocks of that somewhere. And that's what I like to think we're doing. I wonder, because, you know, to me, I think uh, I'm a dad. I have two yeah. kiddos. I have a 14-year-old and a nine-year-old. And I, I've started to, I, I have to be careful about how I parent because I don't want to be like the typical dad telling his kiddos hey this is how life is you know i want to ease into it in a way to where they just hear things that i say and learn from it yeah and so you know with my 14 year old in particular i would never say hey son this is the enneagram let's find your type and all that shit right Right, i wouldn't you know i just wouldn't do that it doesn't sound like a successful plan for me uh (laughs) but i do i do drop little things here and there where it's like hey you know uh, like he's he's a basketball player so Mm -hmm. even with competition i try to just just drop things here and there and I wonder, like, at you know, I, I always I have these fantasies in my head of like, at what point will we just like have a just sit down and talk about the enneagram or everything that I learned? You know, he he knows about my life of incarceration. He knows I wrote a book. Yeah. He knows all that stuff. Um, yeah, but, I did read your book. You know, <laughs> did you? <know? laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> you're one of the uh, you're one of the supporters when when I was uh, doing the Kickstarter. I remember That's very right. clearly. That's right. Uh, That's uh, and thank you for that. Back uh, in the day. Back in the day, that thing was released. <laughs> And uh, it's almost six years ago now. It's it's been a while, been a, been around for a while now, uh, and uh, yeah, that's cool. That's, that just threw me back six years to just you know, that, well that that whole process of you you know letting letting them know yeah. what was going on. Yeah, yeah. Well, he, uh, you know, now that I think about it, now I'm really sidetracked. I we the day that that Kickstarter was was complete, it was the last day of part three when we were in. Uh, oh. Uh, forget the town because it was before the it was before the barn was 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 uh, back in action. Part three, where we it was in, in Connecticut. Somewhere. Oh, we yeah, we were up at the we were up at the Diamond Art place. Yeah, uh, yes, um, and I and because you said that, I'm not going to remember the name. Right, of it, but same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the guest house. The guest house. Yes, that's the one. And the guest we, house. Yes, in in Central Connecticut coast. So uh, we we're 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 rabbit holing hard like. <laughs> or whatever they call that but so to go back to talking about being a parent and and i don't know what do you think about at what point is is it how early do we start talking to to young people about big ideas around their personality around the enneagram as a whole around Mm -hmm. you know all the things that we learn 
when we get into the Enneagram. Yeah. I won't I, say it's age inappropriate, but it's sometimes maybe it's a little much. I don't know. What do you well, think? I think it really depends on the kid. Um, peop, you know, parents ask me this question a lot. I tend to think that first off, kids learn from our example more than anything. If, if we're really practicing presence and we're showing up when we talk to them and they see us processing inf- how we process information, how we don't just jump to some mm-hmm. tiresome old opinion, right? When they see us doing that, they learn that. You know, that, you know various teachers that we work with talk about mirror neurons and how that we learn by imitation. But I think that's true. I mean, if I think about, you know, my dad... Um, he said some things I agree with. He said some things I definitely did not agree with, but that wasn't what impacted me. What impacted me was his honesty, his integrity. It's his birthday today, by the way. Hey, happy birthday. Happy birthday, Dad. <laughs> I got to call him. Yeah. Uh, it, but he, he had a kind of um, way of being that really did impact me, and I think a lot of my good qualities come from what I learned from how he was. As far as these kind of teachings go, I, I kind of leave it up to the kid. I, I, it, when they're ready, if they're curious, they'll ask questions, and I'll tell them. The only other caveat I have about it, and, and kids are different in terms of when they're ready to hear that. Some, they're you know teenagers, and, and they're just fine with it, and others maybe too soon. Um, I find that in the early stages... I never use the Enneagram as a system of ego reduction. Okay. They're not ready for that. They're still forming a a sense of self. So I mostly use it to mirror, help them see what's good about them. Because when you're a teenager, it it so sucks being a teenager. Don't we remember? (laughs) What is worse than being 14, 15 years old? It's terrible. I've done a lot of work to forget those years. It's a terrible (laughs) time for most kids, you know? Nobody particularly likes it, but you know we're we're suddenly we're faced with adult situations where hormones are starting to work and we're feeling weird and yeah. we feel like we'll never fit in and and kids have a lot of negative self concepts coming up at that age. Some of them cover over those with a layer of narcissism and show offiness, but that's just a defense against the fact that they feel crap underneath. So, Enneagram at that stage can help them see what's cool about them and how they're like people that they admire. That's a good one. That's that I find most teenagers that we're looking for role models at that age. And you know, if I found out that certain fives that I just was so amazed with, I would Mm -hmm. like that person. Oh yeah. And then I could see that. And it also helps you start to focus a little bit in on developing your your talents and capacities. Now, I don't think necessarily I need to explain a a, a teenager, their type, their number, or Mm -hmm. any of that, but the information behind it can be helpful in building their confidence, their self-concept, and things like that. They need that, you know, and then when you get in your 20s, then we can start the process of, of seeing through it, but you... Is Jack Engler used to say, you have to be somebody before you can be nobody. Hmm. <laughs> That's a good one. So you're so I if I don't my kid's not a five, but if he were, I, it, a better way to go about the conversation would not be, hey, you're a five, and this is what a five, blah 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 blah. Yeah. It's more like you have the gift 
of clarity. Yeah. You have the ability to do these things. And this yeah. is where you're going to change the world or, or yeah. help the world in yeah. a positive way. Right. I'd even say one of, I would even, you know, put a little more soft boundary around it by just saying, you know, one of one really big gift I see that you have is you have this clarity one, uh, amongst others, but that's one thing that stands out. So again, we're not making it boxy. Mm-hmm. We're saying one, you know, you have other qualities, but that's a, that's a big one. So not, this is the one It's this is one. Yeah. This is one that's really and there good. Are others, yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, we're not, we're not making boundaries for them that they don't need. Um, Adults don't need those either. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a reason we say that there's, you know, there's there's uh, nine prisons. Yeah, and and that's why the enneagram is not a tic tac toe board. It's, <laughs> it's not nine boxes, and there's a reason for that, and that's why we have to endure the fact it looks spooky to to certain folks. Yeah. But it's to remember that it's dynamic. It's interconnected. Um, they're internal relationships. Yeah. Different parts of us, and that's a really important part of it. I, I don't want to end without asking one of my favorite questions. Okay. Um, and, and we're, I mean, we're an hour or so in. I, I hope we're, I hope we're still comfortable. We're, we're still, just, we're good. We're right, good. Cool. Uh, I, I, I'm always, you know, with the podcast, one of my, one of my great fears is that I'll not ask a question that needed to be answered or whatever. Uh-huh. And, uh, I, so more to, to kind of protect from that, I just say, you know, what is something that, what are there? I mean, surely there's questions that nobody ever asked that you just wish you had a time to answer them or, or, or topics to talk about, or whether it's Enneagram, not Enneagram, or anything. Um, is there anything just kind of burning that you just want to just want to say or share? Mm. While I grab another water, <laughs> <laughs> feel free. Um, yeah, I think that if we understand a little bit more what the Enneagram is for. Um, it can help us. And if we have mercy around the whole notion that people are in different places in the process of what it's for, then it's going to be a lot better flying for everybody. Um, On the one hand, you get people being very arrogant and these people aren't doing the real work and everything. But, you know, we didn't start off studying spirituality, reading the Bhagavad Gita or you know, reading commentaries on, you know, Christian mystics or something. We probably read a horoscope book or we read some, you know, popular, you know, new age novel or something. You know, we we did not start with. And so we have to allow for people to get onto different rungs of the ladder. That's very important. But it's also important that a few people at least know further up the ladder and where the ladder's going or, or else you end up with a, a very short ladder that doesn't go anywhere. And my fear is more that's the danger with the Enneagram now, that there aren't enough people. Um, and I want to use my remaining time on this earth to help people who can help secure that next part of the ladder. And what's that about? Well, in old-fashioned language, it's called soul building. You know, we need to do emotional processing. That's part of it. That's the psychology part of it. Um, we need um, we need to recognize that what we are deep down is good and essential, right? And to know that experientially. But we also need to learn how to live that. 
And live, learning how to live it is soul work. And that's the development of our capacities. It's the development of our capacity to witness, to be compassionate, to function in the world without recourse to old programming and patterns. It's, it's, that's the tallest order in the whole thing. And that separates you know, the men from the boys and the women from the girls. You know, it's, it's, um, it's another order. But I think the Enneagram is not just about good news and it's not just about rubbing our nose in our errors. It's about developing people who can live the spiritual truths that they have come to understand. And I really think that's a big part of EPP. I mean, yeah. we can't go and help people if we aren't, developing that aspect of it but that is a lifelong process it's not a quickie it's not like you go and take a few courses and get a piece <laughs> of paper and your your soul is mature no it doesn't work that way so you're telling me that i can't do a facebook survey <laughs> you could do it and be fixed and just well, ready you know, to roll you, you, those things could be helpful little hints <laughs> on the way i'm not against those things but i just hope that people don't stop the search there yeah. you know you know just because you found out your best guess of your type or your instinct stack or your tri type or all of that is just in grist for the mill. But then yeah. what do you do with it? What do you do with that information? And that is, as I said, that's where experience, teaching, being examples, things like that come into play. And we need more people who can carry that aspect of the Enneagram, I think. I'm going to ask a very noob question, very newbie, you know, entry level <laughs> question here. Cause it just popped, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing you talk and my mother listens to the podcast, by the way. Oh hi, my goodness. Yeah. Hi, mom. Hi, mom. <laughs> um, and I didn't know that she, she had listened to like the first few episodes before I even knew that she knew that it existed. I, I sent her a text message. I was like, Hey, I'm, by the way, I'm doing this thing. She's like, Yeah, I already heard. Uh, so hi, mom. Love you. Um, and we've recently started talking about, you know, she's always known about the Enneagram since I got out and we were very close and yeah. she's read the book as well, probably a few times. Um, she's met Susan. She's, she's, you know, all the things that I've done with EPP, she's, she's been hip to. And I've never been just, I've never just leaned on anybody to learn about their type. And, you know, a yeah. saying that I know is common that I've, I've heard from you quite a few times is, you know, when the the student is ready, the teacher will appear. One of my great fears is that I won't be, um, I won't be, uh, good enough when, when, when that moment comes for someone to just say, Hey, what's this all about? How do I find my type? If you didn't have that fear, I'd be worried. Okay. Well, it's comforting. <laughs> it's still there. And it's, it's, I'm glad, I'm glad that that's good. And, and also, <laughs> you know, we, we talk about, uh, you know, I have my opinions on what I think my mom's type is, you know, sure. and I don't want to, one of the first things I learned from yeah. Susan was don't, don't tell somebody else what their type is. You know, right. it's an, it's an, and, and I took that way, way more severely than she intended, by the way, Susan, when she said that. <laughs> so I take it to a degree that I probably shouldn't, but how do I, you know, and using myself and, and my mother as an example, what is the best way for me to navigate that conversation? So, because I think, there, there's so much value in learning the Enneagram. There's so much value in learning, you know, like you say, what's good about us at the core of us. And then yeah. also maybe where our red flags are and all these other things. How best can I have that conversation with my mom mm -hmm. in a way that will be both interactive and not just saying, hey, go read this or go do that, but also not me doing it 
and and telling her from the outside in what her type is yeah, or you know yeah. how, how do i navigate that conversation well i think the best thing i i can do is one ask people questions like we we're already saying um if they've once they're starting to look at it to help them make discriminations are you more like this are you more like this and to you know most people have some trouble seeing some of their parameters shall we say so it's it's helpful for many people to have a conversation about it with mm-hmm. someone who knows them who knows them well um beyond that i just it's helping people develop the habits of of self-observation you know um i think all the major teachers of the enneagram uh historical ones anyway that's the core seeing recognizing the patterns as they come up so i always tell people look you you might come to a conclusion and from reading something in a book or you relate to something you heard on a panel or something but the thing is walk around and see what comes up because what might be coming up is not necessarily a hundred percent connected with your self-concept how you like to see yourself or how you don't like to see yourself. So, you know, we mostly, well, you know, when, when we present the model of the, the strata, you know, we talk about the outermost layer of us is our, our self-concept, but you have to have a little awareness to notice that your actual behavior does not necessarily go along with how you see yourself. And that could be both, you know, you we're better, a lot of things than we think and we're and we don't do certain things that we think we do and we do certain things that we don't think we do so there that search for truth seeing what i'm really up to that's how i always start people and i tell them and i use the triads are you hornavians are good to start with are you a go-getter mm-hmm are you a, a kind of, there's a, a right way to do things kind of person, you're trying to maintain things, or are you a person who pulls back and right. looks at things with a little distance? And you know, most people can tell that. I just help people to start making some distinctions and start the process of search because them acquiring those habits, them acquiring that capacity to study themselves, not intellectually, but in this self-observational modality is ultimately the point of even having Enneagram types. If you know your type, but you don't develop those habits, you haven't been well served. So anything that gets her launched in that kind of stuff, that's what I would, I would advocate for. It's very exciting when someone you care about takes an interest like that and something that had such a big part. And uh, the Enneagram had just such a massive part of my ability to function in the world yeah. you know I, I learned it my last year of incarceration yeah. and I might have been okay I might have I might have done okay without it I might have I might have just stumbled forward the whole way all the way to the grave you know eventually got there um, I don't think I would have had the level of success and I don't mean financial or corporate or any of that stuff. I mean just in in terms of life in general the last 10 years have been all right yeah I ain't too mad about it yeah and I don't think I would have been there without understanding in that last year like what exactly like what is i'm remembering now i just said the f word and my mom heard that earlier (laughs) i don't know why my brain there went went there just now but like i was about to say why you know what the f is yeah i'm 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 
grateful that I had all these tools and it's exciting to hear someone else be interested in it. So yeah, of course it is. Knowing how to so, navigate that. Someone is. you love gets interested. You know, my family was slow. Don Risa's family, as far as I know, never got into it. Wow. Um, but, uh, you know, my family did kind of one at a time. Yeah. I remember my dad came to a training and figured out he was a six and he was, he was quite into it, you know, realizing it, yeah. it explained some things to him. I'm going to go out on a limb and say, you might've known. Yeah. <laughs> I might've known. Yeah. But he that's didn't. true. He didn't know, but I let him find it out. Yeah. And, uh, it, it was more powerful as an experience for him as a result. But the, the other thing is, is just, um, you know, let's say this, um, as, um, I look at it like you were saying, is my life better for having known this? You know, I you go through different spells when you've learned this stuff. You can be feel kind of shamed. You can feel kind of arrogant about it. You know, there's certain things about the five description. I go, yeah, that's how I am, and just deal with it, you know? Mm-hmm. And I could be that way. But really, the best benefit has been it's given me a sense of mercy and compassion for some of my perceived shortcomings, mm-hmm. things that I wish I was more. It, it isn't like a carte blanche that it's okay that I have these shortcomings, but gives me mercy to the fact that I have them. I yeah. like that. Yeah. <sighs> Thank you. Thank you, Clay. I, uh, I, we, we, uh, we have all the time, but I just, I, I feel like that's a good spot, man. Yeah, you'll. Uh, I'll say this, and before I hit stop on the old record button here, you have a, a website, RussHudson.com. RussHudson.com. That's right. And what are we going to find there? Well, you'll find uh, information about any teaching I'm doing online or or in person. You'll find any new publications. You'll find uh, some blogs and things. I'm thinking about putting up a blog about the history of the Enneagram because people say write a book about it, but I think. There's not a lot of people want to read a big old book about yeah. the history here, but I thought perfect thing for a blog. So I'll probably put that on the site. Cool. Well, thank you once again. I appreciate your time and just, uh, I, you're my buddy, man. Yeah. I, I enjoyed chatting <laughs> with you, dude. So thank you. It was fun. Awesome. All right. For more information about EPP, please visit EnneagramPrisonProject.org. We appreciate your time and attention today. Stay tuned for future episodes, which you can expect on the 12th of every month as we continue to tell the story of Enneagram Prison Project.